Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. It's a moment of profound and far-reaching political and economic turmoil. Amidst the global pandemic, war, environmental catastrophe, the cost of living crisis, and where victories for anti-capitalist or even liberal forces are few and far between, it can feel like we're living in well and truly hopeless times. But as Marxist philosopher John Holloway argues in his new book, the times may indeed be hopeless, but we must still have hope. Well, I caught up with John at London's Historical Materialism Conference earlier this month, where his new book was launched. Titled Hope in Hopeless Times, it's the final instalment in a trilogy which he began 20 years ago with Change the World Without Taking Power and continued with Crack Capitalism. It's my real pleasure to have John join us on the show this month. We'll be discussing topics such as hope, identity and the consequences of commodity exchange as a form of social relations. We also talk about recent events such as COP27, the now infamous Liz Truss mini-budget, and efforts to curb the dramatic rise in inflation that we're seeing today. You can find all of John Holloway's books available on the Pluto website at 50% off as part of our autumn sale. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast after November 2022, then you can instead get that discount through our usual offer. So just go to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading and use the coupon podcast at the checkout. Okay, without further ado, here is John Holloway on Radicals and Conversation. Well, John, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. I read Crack Capitalism, I think, in 2010, so I was still at university. It was probably the first Pluto book I read, actually. So indirectly, it has led to me really sort of having this job because I got in touch with publishers that I thought had published interesting work, you know, when I left university. And um, Pluto was one of the first I reached out to and then did an internship and then very sort of soon after that came back and had the job that I have now, which means that's why we're sitting here. So I suppose I owe you some thanks for that. It was a great book. And so it's a real pleasure to speak to you today about this final book in the the trilogy, I guess, which uh, maybe we'll come to now. So you described Hope in Hopeless Times as kind of a, a granddaughter, a third in this trilogy of books you've written. And that began with Change the World Without Taking Power, and then Crack Capitalism followed a few years later. So could you talk about the thread that runs between these books, I suppose, the context that each of them was written in? Because I think 20 years have passed since Change the World Without Taking Power was published. So I suppose, has anything changed in terms of your thinking, or is it more a case that these books just have different emphases between them? Well, first, thanks very much, Chris, for the introduction. It's lovely to think that crack capitalism brought you here. I think of the new book, Hope and Hopeless Times, as being the granddaughter of Change the World and the daughter of crack capitalism. And maybe I think like that just because it has taken so long to produce the books. But there is... um, No, there is certainly a thread that runs through them. I think change the world without taking power. And the argument is really that if, in order to think about revolution, we really have to put aside the idea that revolution or radical social transformation can be achieved through the state. Now, the reaction to change the world 
really took me by surprise. I thought at first nobody would understand it, or maybe just a few friends, and then there was this big debate around it. And, you know, some reactions were, oh, that's just stupid. Other reactions were, well, yes, I don't agree, but we do have to think about what revolution means today. And then there was a third reaction that said, well, yes, that's obvious, I've always thought that, but how on earth do we do it? How on earth do we think about revolution if it doesn't go through the state? And I suppose crack capitalism was really the first attempt to answer that question by saying, well, the best way to think about revolution is through the recognition, creation, expansion, multiplication and confluence of spaces or moments that go in the opposite direction, that actually try and create um, a life or try and create activities on the basis of relations that don't fit into capitalism. Once we begin to think of it, we can probably all think of lots and lots and lots of examples of that, going from the kind of big examples like, say, the Kurdish movement or the Zapatistas in Chiapas, thinking of smaller movements like um, towns that declare themselves, I mean, there's a couple in Mexico, to be anti-capitalist and anti-state. And we can think of it as well in terms of just small activities, groups of students getting together and saying, well, after we graduate, we don't want to sell ourselves to capital. We actually want to do something that makes sense to us, that makes sense to us and that goes against this dreadful, destructive society that we live in. So I think those cracks exist all over the place, by choice, often by necessity as well, people who just don't fit into the logic of capital. Crack Capitalism was published in 2010, and the dreadful thing is that capitalism is still there. You know, you think, oh, well, that should have fallen by now, but it's, it's still there. And is there any way that we can take the argument further? And I suppose that's what the granddaughter is trying to do, is to open up a different way of thinking about the possibility of revolution and a different way of thinking about hope, hope in the sense of anti-capitalist hope. Brilliant, yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you say, the the book is called Hope in Hopeless Times, and... um I think one of the things that I love about your writing is the it's very lyrical, but also there's a real sensitivity to, you know, language and the nuance of language, I suppose, within the books. Because hope might seem synonymous with, you know, optimism or wishful thinking, but you set up the concept of hope in this book sort of in opposition to both of these things. So could you say a bit more about how you're thinking about hope and what the difference is between, say, hope and optimism or hope and wishful thinking? Yeah, I think part of the reason I wanted to write about hope 
is that in a sense I feel that's where I come from, or I suppose we all come from, no? Anybody who, who is critical of capitalism, in a way, comes from some sort of hope. In my particular case, um, it was because I read Ernst Bloch's wonderful work, The Principle of Hope, shortly after I left university. And that really got me into reading Marx. It got me into thinking about Marx's theory. It got me into the critique of capitalism. And I suppose I feel, um, yeah, I wanted to pay tribute to Bloch in a certain way. I mean, I still think that his book is wonderful. I don't think I would now agree with everything if I went back to read it. But um, I think that, starting point of hope is tremendously important and on the other hand I think we get it's kind of a reaction as well against what I think is often the emptiness of hope you know oh yes we hope for a different world and we hope for this and we hope for that but often that hope remains at the level of wishful thinking. I mean, it doesn't lead on to any real thinking about the possibility of change. Well, there's something that Bloch says, I think it's on the first page of The Principle of Hope. He says, hope is in love with success, which is enormously challenging. I mean, he's saying then, okay, if you want really to hope, you have to think seriously about the possibility of hope. And that confronts me, and I suppose a lot of us, with a question that often we don't want to think about. I suppose when I started to think and to read, the idea of revolution was very much in the air still. And, you know, if after these years I kind of carry on in the same theoretical framework, the same Marxist theoretical critical theoretical framework, then I think there has to come a point where I ask myself, well, yes, but do I really think that revolution is possible? And I think there's just no easy answer to that, I think. And that's tremendously important because... I think what happens in practice is that people may still think, yes, we must have a revolution, we must get rid of capitalism, but, you know, in the meantime, we'll campaign for Corbyn or we'll join the Labour Party or we'll join one movement or another and, you know, and we can make an impact that way. It's not that people then say, oh, let's forget about revolution. It's just that in practice, kind of revolution as a concept or as an idea falls off the edge of the table. You know, we, yeah, it's not an issue anymore. And I think that's tremendously, I suppose I feel that's dangerous. Dangerous socially because, of course, we're still faced or faced more than ever with the horrors of capitalism and the the threat of what capitalism means. And also because, certainly in my case and the case of lots of others, I mean, we, we still 
keep on using categories does actually depend upon the possibility, at least, of revolution. No? If revolution is completely impossible, then, yeah, better give up the critique of capitalism and just see what's, what we can achieve within its limits. So, so that's really, I mean, okay, this seems, I think so many people feel these times as being hopeless times. I mean, times where hope really doesn't fit in anymore. You know, we're faced with global warming, with environmental catastrophe, the mass destruction of other forms of life, the threat of nuclear war, sharpening tensions between the US and China, the, with the war in the Ukraine, we have the victory of the right in politics, we have the rise of right-wing extremism that was simply inconceivable 40 years ago, 30 years ago. So it seems that to talk of hope in those circumstances is, is really not just silly, it's almost in bad taste. No. Why do you want to talk about something so ridiculous? And not only something so ridiculous, but something that's become a, a kind of a cliché. No? I mean, all politics, all electoral politics, all political parties use hope as a concept. No? So it's really against that, I suppose. It's against that, that I want to say, no, but we have to come back to hope. But we have to see that hope as hope that's looking at and questioning its own possibility of success. So we really have to ask ourselves this awful question, well, you know, is there really hope? Is there really a possibility of going beyond capitalism? Can we really think in those terms anymore? Um, and uh, yeah, that also means a concept of hope as being hope against hope against this dreadful society that is literally killing us, that is literally confronting us with the possibility of human extinction. You know, but how do you think about that and how far can you take us? Mm, yeah, I mentioned just kind of before that we're doing another series of podcasts coming out in the new year and I was recording one the other day with um, Vijay Prashad and he said something which was quite interesting given that when we were recording this, I was reading your book at the time, and I hope I don't misrepresent him here, but he said something like along the lines of that, you know, postmodernism had had a paralyzing effect on his generation, and he felt that teleology, you know, the idea of perhaps the inevitability ultimately of a socialist revolution overcoming capitalism was important to him as a, as a motivation to struggle, you know, in the here and now. And of course, you know, you write in the book about hope as a pushing in against and beyond rather than a pushing forward, which kind of perhaps implies this a rejection of teleology, a rejection of a, you know, a grand narrative, a sense of the inevitability of our success, if you like. So um, what do you make of um, yeah, Vijay's position on this about the need to kind of believe that we could succeed? How does that relate to your thinking about hope? No, I think I recognise that as having been a tremendously important force in the past. People a hundred years ago or perhaps still 50, 60 years ago had this idea that there's going to be a happy ending. 
No, history is on our side. And this really fortifies us in our struggle. I think that that was tremendously important. And I feel that it's no longer the case. I think now it's very difficult to think that history is on our side. That just seeing what progress has meant and what progress means forces us into thinking that no, history is not on our side. Actually, we have to struggle against history. And in that, there's this um, wonderful saying by Walter Benjamin, where he says, well, Marx thought of revolution as being a locomotive that drives forward through capitalism and will come out the other side to communism. And it's really not like that, that now, yes, we're on the train, but the problem is to pull the emergency brake, to stop the train. And I think that reverses that whole, what I understand as historical materialist understanding, you know, that, yeah, we go through capitalism and come out at the other end. I don't think we can have any confidence in that at all, that really the present situation is too desperate, that we have to to say, no, history is not on our side. There is indeed a grand narrative, but the grand narrative is taking us towards disaster, possibly extinction. And the problem of revolution is to break the logic of capitalist development. I think I say that in the book, that for Bloch, Bloch was still very much thinking in terms of a grand narrative, um, a great journey where at the end we would come home, and we would come home through the working class revolution against capital. And I think now hope for me means, oh yes, We want to come home, we want to come to a society based on the mutual recognition of one another's dignities. Yes, absolutely, we not only want to come home, we need to come home because of the threat of of extinction or of catastrophe. But we can't have any confidence that that's the way we're going. We really have to break from the current trajectory of history. So that really, I suppose, turns hope around in a little I mean, hope is about breaking, it's about rupture, it's about perceiving fragility. Mm. Yeah, I think that that inversion, the idea of the pulling the emergency brake on the train, probably resonates with people more at the moment because we do feel like we're hurtling towards the abyss particularly around the climate, but I mean, you mentioned a long list of very terrifying things that are happening in the world. And I think, yeah, people can all recognise that. I mean, talking about left movements and what motivated them in the past, I think you say in the book that one of the crucial failings of like left revolutionary movements in the 20th century was their sort of identitarianism. And identity politics is, you know, very much contested terrain today in terms of its, you know, radical potential, I suppose. So could you say a bit more about identity? Because this is, again, a very central theme of the book. Uh, What does it mean and what does identity do in in the context of, you know, the arguments you make? Yes, I think the whole question of identity and anti-identity 
is a crucial part of the book. Because I think if we say, well, you know, this historical trajectory idea won't work. And we also have to say, I think, that the working class, as usually understood, has not proved to be revolutionary. And if we say that really the centre is this process of breaking, we need to break out, we need to break out from the limits of where we are, then we begin to think of this as being an anti-identitarian argument, anti-identitarian in the sense that I understand identity as really something that holds us in place, that defines us, okay? that defines us perhaps in national terms. I mean, as I am British, I am Irish, I am whatever or in terms of colour, I am black, I am white, I am brown, or in terms of gender, I am a woman, I am a man, I am trans. For me, I think this whole concept of identity arises from the nature of capitalist relations. I mean, one of the arguments of the book is that it is really money, it is really commodity exchange that imposes identities upon us, that divides us from the sense of a community in movement and that imposes fixations upon us. I mean, we can understand identification, I suppose, in terms of Marx's term of fetishism or reification. These are kind of freezings rigidifications of social relations. And if we want to think of radical change, or not only if we want to think of radical change, in the way, just the, the nature of capitalist aggression, I suppose, pushes us beyond these identifications, paradoxically, and forces us to question our own identities. And I think that that has to be the way forward. I think there's, we have to think of revolution in terms of an overflowing. There is a wonderful phrase which I love, which I take from Raoul Van Eichem, where he talks of um, revolution as the poetry of overflowing. And I think that's fabulous. I mean, that that's really it. So it's not a question, for example, of rejecting the working class and saying, now we'll go to a different identity. Now it's women or trans or whatever identity you choose who are the revolutionary subjects. It's really a question of saying, well, I suppose it's the working class overflowing from itself, overflowing beyond work or overflowing rather beyond labour. And the same in any form of protest. What we're looking for is really an overflowing, the refusal to accept limits to that process, the refusal to accept definitions. So it's not not so much a question of rejecting identities, but overflowing from those identities. Hmm. I mean, talking about containment and overflowing, again, you know, two words which recur throughout the book. 
Could you say a bit more about the way in which capitalism is therefore a system of containment? Why does it impose these identities on us? I think what I focus on the book, um, capitalism, of course, yes, as a system of containing us within certain forms of behaviour, a system of containing our thoughts within certain categories. I find the easiest way to think about that is in terms of money, and I tend to talk more about money than capital, not because money is counterposed to capital, but because I suppose I think of money as being in some way more frontline in the critique of capitalism, partly because we need to, to open up to fresh language, but partly because money is something that we experience every single day as a force that contains our activity or pushes our activity in certain ways. Now, um, most, all of us, I assume, will spend money between today and tomorrow and we'll spend money in order to buy the basic food or whatever that we need to live. But we also know that in order to obtain that money, we have to behave in certain ways. Now, we have to go to work if we have employment. If we're unemployed, then the system forces us to look for employment and forces us to go through certain bureaucratic procedures. So that really are the way in which our activities are determined from one day to the next is shaped by the existence of money as a social relation. So I think of money as being the great container that contains us in our everyday lives, but also that defines the way that society as a whole moves, because of course it is the drive for profit that determines or that shapes the way in which major social decisions are taken. What is considered possible, what is considered impossible. So it's the drive for profit that's behind global warming, for example. It's the drive for profit that is very arguably behind the pandemic and behind the way that the pandemic has been treated. It's the drive for profit that pushes states well into militarization and into war. No? So it's really we live in a world ruled by money. And it's difficult to say because if we say, well, to most people, do you want money? Then the obvious answer is yes, of course we want money because we want to be able to eat well, because we want to know that our children will have some sort of security, whatever. But if you ask, do you want a a world ruled by money? Then I think most people will say no. No, it would actually be much better to have a world where we take our own decisions, where we're able to shape what we do and how society moves and we're we're not afraid that we'll be cut off from food if we don't behave in the right way. No, of course we don't want the world ruled by money. 
But I think as it is at the moment, of course, we live in a world ruled by money. Money is the great container, the great totalizer. But at the same time, we constantly protest against that. You know, we constantly overflow from that. You know, we say, I don't know, when we, if we cook a meal for our children, we don't expect them to pay us at the end of the meal or, or before they sit down. <laughs> no. um, we have this concept of friendship or love as really being a space free of money. So it's, yeah, I think hope then, I understand this hope against money, essentially, and hope having a material basis in the constant overflowings from money as a social relation. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that I found quite interesting in the book is, well, we've already kind of touched on you know, the working class is like the vehicle of change, which we might describe as people, you know, who are insubordinate or having a, an active conscious like critique of capitalism. And then there's distinction between that and sort of non-subordination, the ways in which we misfit or just kind of, you know, drag our feet against the logic imposed upon us. So there's something that I want to kind of talk about, which I guess is this idea of the mutual interpenetration and antagonism between both the system of domination, you know, capitalism, and us as subjects within it, and that this kind of mutual interpenetration is, you know, key to your analysis, I think. Because the logic of capitalism, the logic of money, its, you know, demands, penetrates us as subjects, whether or not we have a conscious critique of capitalism if we're against it, because it's so sort of totalizing. But we also penetrate capitalism with our sort of misfitting with our resistance with our you know need to fulfill ourselves in ways that aren't kind of defined by that dynamic and that maybe this is where the potential you know crisis of capitalism lies in the fact that we penetrate it as a system so could you say a bit more about that seed of perhaps the crisis being us as subjects you know because it's an interesting relationship the idea that the system requires us in order to function but we also might be the the thing that ultimately causes its fragility or crisis. Thinking about the topic of hope and how on earth we can move forward in, in, in hope at the moment, I think crap capitalism was really saying, well, the way we move forward in hope is through the creation of spaces and moments of disobedience. And what the present book wants to say is, well, yes, that is still central. Okay? The really hope depends upon our refusals, our creations of spaces and moments in which we determine our own development, in which we refuse the rule of money. But maybe we have to think further and that's part of the idea of the granddaughter. Uh, the granddaughter is being slightly rebellious and saying, you know, okay, mummy, okay, grandma, you know, what you said is very good, but we really, it's not far enough. Or, it's not enough. I think that's part of a, the anguish of the present book is it's kind of not enough, not enough, not enough. And so the granddaughter, this book, I think of her taking out a machete 
because of course she's a Mexican granddaughter, and hacking a new path forward. And the new path is really to say, well, yes, of course, there are all these struggles going on. They're tremendously important. The problem is that they don't seem to have any impact on capital. But that's not logical in a sense. Logically, we know that there has to be an interpenetration between two antagonistic poles. We can see that very clearly in, in the way in which money penetrates into our everything we do and everything we think. Well, why don't we ask about the other way around? Why don't we ask about the way in which our struggles penetrate money and possibly constitute a chronic, even fatal illness within money? Let's turn the question around and let's see where it takes us. And I suppose one of the things I feel about the book is that that hasn't been done before. At least this is, you know, the granddaughter is hacking out a new direction. We don't know really whether it will lead us to some kind of clear way forward. But I am confident that this is actually a new direction, that you're kind of this is you know, asking, you know, how is it that our our struggles subvert domination and subvert money in a way that we do not easily perceive. And the way I I follow that up is really in terms of the history of money itself and the history of money over the last hundred years in particular. And I take my cue from an article by Tony Negri that he wrote back in the 1960s, where he says, uh, kind of fascinatingly, he says, well, Keynes and the Keynesian welfare state is a response to the Russian Revolution. That the Russian Revolution struck panic into the hearts of capital. And Keynes was intelligent enough to understand that and to understand that capitalist rule had to be reformulated in some way. And there is a more recent book by Jeff Mann called In the Long Run, We Are All Dead, which focuses on on Keynes. And he takes issue with Negri and says, no, it's not the Russian Revolution that Keynes was afraid of. Keynes was afraid, but he was afraid of the rabble, rabble which he saw as a potentially fascist trouble. Okay. Whichever line we take, um, what this poses is really the question of how struggle against capital exists as a threat from the point of view of capitalists or the thinkers of capitalism and strikes fear into them. And I think one thing that we tend to forget about on the left is that rulers live in fear always because they're in the absurd situation of trying to control millions of people they live in the fear that this may not work 
the people may just say no and walk away or may overthrow them or may hang them from the nearest lampposts, whatever. No. So if you actually look at, at, at that question in terms of money, then what I think we can see is that there is a fear there. There is a fear that has been pushing capitalism into a fictional existence over the last 40 years. Yeah. It really starts in the 1930s with the abandonment of the, the gold standard and at the time when that was being discussed in the United States, there was one Democratic senator, Bernard Baruch, who says, we may not realise that, but what is happening is that we are allowing the mob into the centre of capital. And this is bigger, something bigger than the French Revolution. And I think he was right. I think that it was actually the mob, whether we see it as the revolutionary mob or just the unknown mob, that was forcing a separation between gold and money. And that this happens again, of course, with the abandonment of the Bretton Woods in 1971. You know, it was the mob, the world mob in Vietnam, the world mob in terms of anti-war protests and strikes all over the world in the late 60s that forced, in the end, the separation of the dollar from gold. And that this opened up a whole period of expansion of debt where the claims on value no longer correspond to the value being actually produced. A kind of growing gap that makes capital as a whole more and more inefficient, more and more volatile through the constant postponement of a confrontation with anti-capitalist forces. And they talk, I mean, the capitalists themselves now talk about this in terms of secular stagnation, for example. And that we're probably in the last few months, we're now seeing a kind of crunch point where they're trying to reverse that, I mean, through the rises in interest rates by the Fed. But it's just not clear yet how far that can be carried or whether that would really reverse the trend towards the growing fictionalisation and growing fragility of the whole system. So that's really kind of, I suppose, yes, that's the, the granddaughter's path that she's trying to open up. Just where this lead, leads us politically, um, I think is a bit complicated for me. Well, I'm something I'm trying to digest rather, but I think this is actually a, a kind of an additional way of thinking about hope. Mm. Yeah, it's been interesting in Britain uh, recently. Obviously, we've been going through prime ministers at quite a rate. Um, I was wondering if what you saw or what you made of the disastrous attempts by Liz Truss, 45 days premiership, um, to, I guess, break with, well, was it was she attempting to break with economic orthodoxy? I mean, it was a, a mini budget for the super rich, 
but the financial markets effectively terminated her premiership. I mean, I'd just be interested to see how that fits into your analysis. Yeah, I think that part of the of the argument of the three books, I mean, uh, you know, that w- we cannot bring about radical change through the state, you know, is that also the state is not where power is. Power is in money. Power is in not only the power of the rich or the big corporations, no. Power is in the movement of money, the way in which it moves, the way in which what trillions of dollars move per second or per minute from one place to another. A state or a government can be effective only to the extent that it respects the power of money in movement. What clearly happened with Liz Truss and the mini-budget of Quartain was that they got that completely wrong. They didn't understand how money was going to move, and the result was a very sharp slap on the wrist. And now you have to respect the movement of money, and you have to try and understand the movement of money if you want to govern as a state, so I think that's... Yeah, yeah. I think what you say in the book about how um, capital sort of necessitates the creation of a state, the state might have the appearance of neutrality or being sort of separate from that dynamic, but it is committed to the reproduction of capital, and so it isn't really ever going to offer a liberatory horizon, you know. Yeah, there's some interesting ideas about the state's reliance on and reproduction of capital and, yeah... Um, what kind of roles or you know functions does it perform that allows the system of capitalism to, to continue and reproduce itself? I think the state is necessary for the functioning of capitalism because the existence of capital as a multiplicity of capitals, a multiplicity of competing capitals, means that the system can only reproduce itself if there is an instance, the state, that stands apart from those capitals and tries to ensure their reproduction. So there has to be a separate instance that imposes the social discipline that individual capitals are unable to impose. There has to be a state to regulate the conditions of competition and interaction between the capitals. But it is a state that always depends upon the reproduction of capital for its own existence, because the state, by definition, involves having a large number of people who are not involved directly in production. How do you pay them? You can only pay them by getting money from the actual economic process. And then that means in this society, it's a capitalist process so that the state depends for its reproduction on promoting the accumulation of capital. Mm. You know, the whole COP27 process has been going on this month. And, uh, you know, every time it rolls around the next one, you always just think, there's so much attention paid to it. And yet... It seems ultimately futile, and uh, I suppose kind of interpreting it through what you've just been saying, it, it's kind of not surprising at all because 
the process fails to deliver the radical outcomes we need on the climate crisis because it is state-led and states' interests are subordinated to those of, you know, capital. Yeah, I don't know if there's a, a question in there at all or if it's just a remark, really. I think it's a pretty good question. I mean, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, because one of, the, I suppose, one of the conclusions of the book is if we think of hope as being hope against money, the question is how on earth do we break the rule of money? And there I feel we're kind of caught in a dilemma of trying to say something that is both obvious and impossible to say at the same time. I mean, it's obvious if I say to you or we say to somebody, well, okay, look at what's happening with global warming. Look at what's happening in the COP conferences. And there you see the power of money. And there you see that it's very difficult for, or impossible for states to overrule the drive to profit. And we know perfectly well that it is this drive to, for profit that is destroying the world. No? Okay, therefore, it is very obvious that we need to get rid of money if we really want to think of a future for humanity. So it's obvious on the one hand, and on the other hand, if you say, well, we need to abolish money, then that sounds mad. And I suppose part of the argument of the book is to say, well, of course we need to abolish money. We are literally in the situation of life against money, as the Zapatistas have put it so clearly. There is life against money now. But how can we think about that? And the argument of the book is, well, money is not the omnipotent force that it seems to be. It is actually much more fragile than it seems to be. It is much more insecure. It is much more shaky. And it is fragile because it is the attempt to contain the uncontainable. It is the attempt to contain our struggles, our longings, our hopes, our richnesses, and it is not able to do it. So that in spite of appearances, money is extremely fragile. That is why we can begin to say, well, yes, really, there is a way of breaking breaking money. There is a way of thinking how to go beyond money. Mm. A significant section of the book where you talk about this sort of process of logical derivation, I guess, where, you know, one thing leads to another. So you have a commodity that leads to value, which leads to labor and to money and so on. I'm not going to ask you to sort of dive into the nitty gritty of that so much, but I suppose it is interesting in suggesting that it's not just, you know, greed or a love of money, but something inherent within, from the very beginning, from just like commodities themselves, that that kind of has a a process and it leads us to this, you know, to bring back to your metaphor, the train that's kind of hurtling towards the abyss, right from the very kind of start of that process. The way that you present that in the text is the idea of, yes, commodity with linked with these kind of hyphens from one to the next. And I suppose the follow-up question then is, you know, how you go about thinking about trying to break this chain. 
and then you identify, I think, two approaches to that question. One is to sort of go after the links, the links between, you know, say, you know, commodity and value or value and labor and so on. And then the other approach is to find that sort of internal antagonism within each category. Again, yeah, I just thought that was very interesting. Where do you see potentially these kind of approaches to thinking about those internal antagonisms within these categories themselves? And how would that look distinct from trying to attack the linkages between these, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think Marx is very frightening. I think Marx, what he argues in Capital, and I think he is right in that, he says, well, the problem is commodity exchange. If we relate to one another through the exchange of commodities, then inevitably we will develop money and money will develop its own dynamic and it will seek its self-expansion. In other words, money won't just be used for buying apples, but you'll get an accumulation of money that simply tries to find a way of getting more money. And this inevitably leads on to exploitation, it leads on to a whole dynamic of development. It leads on to a society based on the pursuit of profit. In other words, if we want to think of breaking this dynamic, we have to get rid of commodity exchange. We have to relate to one another in a different way. And I think that's absolutely right. I think that as long as money is there, therefore as long as commodity exchange is there, we are actually heading towards deeper and deeper catastrophe. So we have to get rid of that. How do you think of breaking commodity exchange? Or how do you think of breaking money? For me, the important thing is to think of them as processes, that all these things aren't nouns, and they aren't established facts. They are actually processes, and we processes meaning processes struggle. So if we think of commodity, it's really a process of commodification, but commodification is a process of struggle and implies an opposite process. You can think of what's happened with education over the last 30 years, 40 years. There has been a very intense process of commodification of education. It's now become much more something to be bought and sold than was the case, what, 50 years ago. The same with health, whatever. So that money is a commodity is a process of commodification. Money is a process of monetization. And aware of it or not, we actually resist those processes all the time. You talked earlier on about the distinction between insubordination and non-subordination. Insubordination, for me, would be saying, yeah, no, we won't accept it. We won't accept the commodification of education. Non-subordination would be, I suppose, a less conscious process where we just think, well... Yeah, that's not what's important to us. No, the money isn't important to us. We would prefer to spend time to 
you know, playing with their children or lying in bed or whatever. Um, and I think that non-subordination is actually a tremendously important force. I mean, it's because the big problem, I suppose we've talked about the fictionalization of capital, the huge expansion of debt. Well, there's been a huge expansion of debt because capital is not able to produce the surplus, or capital is not able to get us to produce the surplus value it requires. It's not able to exploit us sufficiently to meet the requirements of its own reproduction. And it's not able to exploit us sufficiently, partly because we're, I don't know, too lazy, we're thinking of other things, we're um, perhaps too stupid to learn how to control all these digital things or whatever, or too stupid to learn English. Or So I think this non-subordination is tremendously important. So, okay, if you think of commodity, money, capital, etc. You can think of it either in terms of, well, how do we break the link between commodity and money? Well, we can perhaps break it by having markets based on barter. No? How do we break the link between money and capital? Well, perhaps we could take action to reduce the accumulation of money. Or, but I'm saying is, no, let's look, actually, there is a resistance already within the commodity or within money. There is a, a, a resistance there all the time that pushes commodification away, that pushes monetization of social relations away. And to think from there, to recognize the power of that, and to think from there politically. Mm, yeah. As you kind of reach the last chapters in the book, I suppose, you acknowledge that there is this expectation towards the end of a book to offer some sort of solution, some sort of, and therefore, you know, we must do X or Y. So um, it's an impossible, you know, question really, and probably it would have been against the spirit of the whole book to try and offer some sort of programmatic thing there. So I suppose I'd invite you to conclude this podcast however you like I'm not going to ask you a final question but you know just what would you like to leave our listeners with is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think is key to the book and you know key to your thinking on this or yeah thinking about the book or thinking how to talk about the book because I'm just at the beginning of that really yeah I mean this is really for me a a kind of an anguish the book is called hope and hopeless times And I think both parts of the title are very important to me. It doesn't make sense to talk about hope without talking about the hopeless times. I mean, that we're really on this moment, I suppose, where history is facing towards, in both ways, towards absolute disaster or perhaps towards the potential for emancipation. But I try, I suppose, when I'm thinking about how on earth do I actually, am I going to end a talk on the book? Um, I suppose there are certain points that I think I want to emphasize. One is this question that I already mentioned about how do we say the unsayable? How do we say abolish money? 
And I think that this is going to be something or must be something that becomes more and more acute in the years to come. If things go, as people say, in terms of um, climate change, in terms of ecological disaster, then at what point do we say or do people recognise that this disaster is connected to the existence of money? At what point do people say, well, it's not going to be resolved by COP 27 or 28 or 29, and it's not going to be resolved by states, and it's not going to be resolved as long as society is based on the rule of money. And you think, well, people have to say that. But it's still very difficult to say. It's very hard to imagine a a demonstration going out into the streets with placards all saying, abolish money. Mm. And yet we have to get there somehow. I suppose I think of that in terms of an overflow. Of course we must go out and campaign against global warming. And somehow it's an overflow from the discussions and an overflow that yeah, is already there to some extent, but must grow and grow in strength. Say, so, well, you know, if we're serious really about stopping or even controlling global warming, then we have to put, first to put on the agenda of the general public discussion, we have to say, look, This has to be a point of discussion. How on earth do we break with the rule of money? So, yeah, I suppose I want the book to be a contribution to that, to say, you know, how do we break with the rule of money? And in another slightly um, different context, but it's really very much the same context, I think that it is very clear now that the attempt to deflate the fictionalization of capital through the Federal Reserve's raising of interest rates and all the central banks raising interest rates, that's going to cause tremendous hardship and starvation in the next two, three, four years. You know, more and more states are going to be faced with the necessity to default on their debts and therefore they're going to be faced with the imposition of monetary discipline through the IMF. They're going to be faced with riots, you know. The riots will almost certainly, or in the first instance, be against the governments in power. You know, is there any way in which in those situations it is possible to say, well, it's not really the government in power that's at fault. And it's not really the IMF either. It's the existence of this ridiculous social relation, which is money. And it's the existence of the social relation of money that is going to drive hundreds of thousands of people into starvation in the next few years. That is going to contain or or cripple 
the enormous richness of potential of millions and millions and millions of people. So how do we break the rule of money? How do we understand this violence of money as being a symptom of its fragility? And how do we turn that fragility to our own benefit as part of understand this in terms of the breakability of money as a social relation. You kind of feel, well, that seems absurd, but that's so necessary. That's the way we have to go. That's the way we have to to try and think a way forward. Mm. Yeah, I think that's what the book does so beautifully is make these ideas which might seem terrifyingly sort of radical or far out or just absurd seem very common sense and very necessary and um, I encourage people to read it I mean it's very powerful and uh, it's been really lovely having this conversation with you today thanks so much John no thank you very much Chris it's really been a, a great pleasure and privilege thanks a lot that was John Holloway on radicals and conversation his new book, Hope in Hopeless Times, is out now. It's available to buy from plutobooks.com and podcast listeners can get 50% off this book and John's previous books as well. You just need to use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with the next episode of Radicals and in Conversation in-house and then again next month with our regular panel show. So until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>